if we just let go of that and say, you know, I'm not going to expect anything. I'm just going to give love to the best of my ability. Automatically, you're going to be projected into this best version of yourself to a really great degree. Welcome back. You're listening to Let It Out. I'm Katie Dalebout. I'm so happy you're here. Thank you so much, first of all, to everyone who listened to last week's episode. It was our year in review clips episode about heartbreak and breakups, and it just meant so much to me. So if you haven't listened to that episode yet, go back and listen to it. Send it to someone who might need it or it just might be useful or entertaining to them. It's not a downer. It sounds like a downer, but it's actually not a downer. And I really appreciate all the feedback that I've been getting on not only that, but also the Soothe Kit, which is a eight day email zine that's delivered to your inbox with a theme and a journaling prompt and an action every single day and soft stories, stories of vulnerability to make you feel less alone and I hope that you check it out or send it to someone who it might be useful for. You can send it as a gift, which might be really nice. Also, happy holidays, you guys. This is the season finale. I won't be back until January 16th, so make sure you're subscribed and on the Let It Out letter list so I can keep in touch with you guys. This week's episode was recorded at the Faraday Store live, so you'll hear some live questions at the end, which I think were really valuable, but it's with an anxiety researcher. This is Dr. Tracy, who is a friend of mine, and she's the co-executive director at the Hunter College Center for Health and Technology, and her research is fascinating. And you'll hear about some of that in this episode, but we also talk about stress versus anxiety and the overuse of the word anxiety. We talk about change mental health in general. We talk about fear and clinical depression and strategies for supporting yourself through the discomfort of an anxiety spiral. She's very articulate and smart and relatable and lovely. We talk a bit about parenting. She's a mom. I loved this episode and I really love Tracy. I will say to you guys, I was sick. (laughs) So you'll hear that in my voice a little bit. But I think even through the brain fog, It was a pretty good conversation, and I think you guys will enjoy it. So happy holidays. I love you. Check out the Soothe Kit, and I will talk to you guys at the end. By now, if you've been listening for a while, you know I love Care-of. Care-of is a wellness brand that makes it easy to get the right vitamins, supplements, protein powders for your specific needs. Whether you're looking for glowing skin, more energy, better sleep, they have something to support your health, your fitness routine, and they tailor their products to be exactly what you need. You go to their website, you take this really fun quiz that I always love, and they make it really healthy to get it back into a healthy routine and support you. Care of makes it super easy to keep taking your vitamins and maintaining your healthy habits as we move into these colder months where a lot of people are getting sick. I was sick when this episode was recorded and it was because I had like 
laxed on my vitamins a little bit. But whenever I find myself taking my care of vitamins, I really do find I get sick less and I feel better and I have more energy. You go to their website, you take this quick five minute quiz. Like I said, you answer questions about your lifestyle, your needs, and then they send you exactly what you need. It's easy and convenient and you can really experience the care of difference. Care of is just, it, they're just the best. I love them so much and they make these compostable packs that meet the same quality and safety standards and they have a ton of info on how to compost them on their website. I love brands that are thinking about the environment and ways to be more sustainable. So I really love that. So for 50% off your first order of Care Of, go to takecareof.com and enter the code Let It Out at checkout. Again, that's 50% off your first order at takecareof.com and use the code Let It Out at checkout. They're easy and convenient and they source the best, most highest quality ingredients in all of their products. I trust this company. I love this company. Give them a go. I haven't been sick in a while, so I'm like warming up with how this works, but I can definitely see the brain fog. So forgive me if I'm like not as with it today as I normally am. Um, but thank you guys so much for coming. Like Kim said, this is really cool. I'm so glad you're here. Speaking of phones, I have my notes on my phone, so I'm not texting, um, but I didn't have a chance to print them. But anyway, I'm, I'm really excited about this conversation. I love Tracy so much. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you so much. It's, such it's a pleasure. so cool to get to talk to you and get to talk to you um, with people eavesdropping and it's even, even better. And so how, when we were talking about having this conversation and, and doing this event, I came up with a couple, I have a plethora of questions for you because you have expertise in so many things that I'm curious about. And every time we've had a conversation, it's just been so flowing and wonderful. And so I, I really want to kind of put some pennies in the Tracy jukebox <laughs> and ask you to talk about a couple of things. And then I want to spend some time at the end. The three of us were talking a bit about holidays and stress and anxiety. And so I came up with a few things that I find are useful. And I thought we could go over those and things that you think are useful and then have a conversation to all of us so we can all leave here and be like, all right, we got like, a little bit more of the holidays. We're going to do this. It's going to be great. We're going to not be stressed. And yeah, and then we'll, we'll hang out. How does that sound? Perfect. Okay, great. I know you and, and love you, but not everyone here might know you have this very interesting backstory of how you got to doing the research and the work that you're doing now. So could you tell a little bit about that? How far do you want me to go back? <laughs> uh, as, as far as you want. And then I'll, and then I'll um, maybe, maybe kind of far, because I think it's relevant. It is a little, I, I will uh, go a little far and forgive me. I'll try to keep it brief because I think as a researcher now in anxiety and stress and as someone who works in, in the digital wellness space, I think a lot about sort of the story we tell about our lives makes a huge difference. And my story uh, goes back far because I started life you know, in college and before as a musician. And so I took a, not a straight path. And a lot of us feel anxiety about the future and anxiety really is a future orientation. And so dealing with uncertainty is very hard. And I, as I think about my path, there was a lot of wrong turns or, or strange turns or uncertainty. And when I, you know, my students and just friends and everyone, you know, when I talk to people about 
how you see your future, I just like to say, you know, maybe it's not a straight path. Yeah. And you still end up someplace that's really full of joy yeah. and opportunity. So, so I started life as an oboist of all things. You may not even know what an oboe is, and I would not, I would not hold it against you. But I went to conservatory, the Eastman School of Music, um, and had been at a school of the arts prior to that in high school, and was just set on being a musician, an orchestral musician. And Eastman is part of the University of Rochester, where they have a really remarkable psychology program. And so I was able to just take whatever courses interested me. So I started taking courses in child development. I took Sanskrit. I took Hindu mysticism. I just did things that interested me. And I found myself at this place called the Mount Hope Family Center, where they were some of the first people to do science around the issues surrounding child maltreatment. And so my first job as a research assistant was to work with some of these kids who had really faced some some very difficult experiences and, and had been maltreated. I worked with them a little during the day. And then um, on other days, I would go into the basement of Child Protective Services and read over their files um, because what we needed to do was to characterize and classify the types of abuse they had experienced. And even now, I feel very choked up even talking about that because I would be working with these, you know, some of these kids really did face, you know, they were troubled, many of them. They were having challenges, but they were remarkable. They were beautiful and, you know, and just bright and, and creative. And then I would go in the basement, which is a perfect metaphor for, you know, these stories, and just really read about things that no one should have to go through, let alone those children. And so I think it was through that experience that I, I really uh, fell in love with this idea of resilience. How in the world could these children go through those experiences and be resilient and still have life and hope and creativity. And in my junior year at conservatory, after my junior recital, I, out of nowhere, it seems to me in retrospect, I, st- I said, I'm leaving conservatory and I'm going to study psychology and I'm going to be a psychologist. And so that's what I did, which to this day, I don't know, my poor parents and <laughs> I mean, my hobo teacher, he was completely <laughs> like blindsided. But I realized that I was getting up every morning wanting to figure out that question and how can we actually understand not only how kids are resilient and all of us are resilient but how to promote that Mm -hmm. and it just got me up every morning excited and passionate fast forward many years I went in thinking I wanted to be a clinical psychologist in practice during grad school I fell in love with research and then I so I wanted to be then a researcher I thought I was only interested in sort of parent-child relationships then I fell in love with the brain and now I do neuroscience research almost exclusively now But what I realized is that the overarching question and passion really never changed about how do we find joy and promote joy Mm. in life. And I think when I anchored myself in that something greater than myself that was bigger and that it animated me, kind of the anxiety about taking uncertain steps and leaving a whole, I'd spent my life becoming a musician to, to be able to do that. I think it was because I was inspired by something greater than me and that's how I was able to do it. And I think anxiety is, is is linked to that in many ways. So you, it sounds like you really made science an art. And I feel like that what you were saying before about the nonlinear path really allowed that to happen, that you were, that you are an artist, but you just took it into a different medium, which happened to be science. That's a great way to say it. And I think I funneled all of that creative energy into science because science and classical music, they're classical traditions. They have rules. There's a right way to do it. But once you master those techniques, you can transcend them. 
and create something completely out of the box. And that appealed to me as a musician. And I think it appealed to me as a human being with these questions and with these passions that I had discovered. Yeah, it's kind of like we we all know what framework works for us to share whatever we're going to share. And for you, it's this outline and then you can go beyond those lines. And for other people, that would really stress them out. And everyone just has to kind of find their footing of what works for them. It might be like working several different jobs or trying different mediums or different art forms. But I feel like you found it honestly rather quickly comparatively to (laughs) other people, you know? I don't know. It felt like such a process along the way because each step I just sort of had to decide, do I take a chance on this? Yeah. And what I realized, just hearing you speak, I've never really thought about this. I mean, part of what's fundamental about anxiety is it, it is this feature orientation. So anxiety is not fear. Right? Because fear is that you have a danger right now in this moment, something threatening you, and your body kicks into fight flight, and you can respond to it, and that's why fear is adaptive. Anxiety is not about the present moment. It's about this uncertain future and our apprehension about what might happen. And so it's a different kind of beast. So for a lot of us, when we struggle with anxious moments in our life, or maybe we suffer from anxiety uh, consistently, there's this, this difficulty with that uncertainty and not finding a foothold in the face of it. And for me, I think, just hearing you say that, I think the discipline of classical music, the discipline of science, there was something maybe very, helped me pull back from all, even though there was a lot of uncertainty, maybe something about that certainty was very beautiful and and also comforting to me Mm. on some level. I never really thought deeply about it. Yeah, that's really interesting. With your research and anxiety and your work now and getting into it in the way that you did, was it from a personal place? Did you experience anxiety? Where, where were you at the time when you decided to sh- shift to psychology? Where were you mentally? Yeah, that's a great question because in psych- a lot of us psychologists who do research, we say, well, research, research. So we sort of, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I think you know, my lab, my research lab is called the Emotion Regulation Lab. So it's a very broad umbrella about how do we use emotions adaptively in our life and how do they get in the way? So I think that was me search research because I've always been, I've had very strong emotional feelings from uh, forever and kind of learning how to work with that in my life. That's the me search. I have had experiences with depression and clinical depression, but I never um, had the same degree of, of struggle with anxiety. So in, in, in some ways, you know, I had that experience, but I think depression was more of my vulnerability because they are comorbid all the time, so commonly, meaning often when you struggle with one, you know, it's sort of this pendulum of of experiencing the other as well. But you didn't really have It wasn't my big challenge. I had many other challenges, but that wasn't one. And and in some ways, I feel that was helpful. So I had enough objectivity, but I also feel I had enough anxiety uh, in my life that there was some insight. But I think the key to doing good research is is finding those areas where you have enough, enough empathy and experience that you connect and sometimes, you know, I think you can be very subjective and still do very good science, but sometimes you want just that little bit of being able to take Distance. a step back and yeah. a little bit. Yeah. So yeah. at that point in my life, when I, you know, it's been the better part of 20 years, I've been a researcher. And I think that I followed the dots to what are the factors in, in our emotional lives that we can figure out how to leverage, but that can also get in our way. And I think anxiety is that problem of our times right now. So we see you know, rates of anxiety going up in our, in our young people in particular today, along with depression. 
and risk for suicide. I think technology is, I don't ever really lay the blame at the feet of technology for an uptick in anxiety, but I think it's an accelerator and an amplifier as it is of many things. So there's this moment now where I think anxiety is the new stress in, in many ways, because when I was growing up as a Gen Xer, any feeling we had that was sort of uncomfortable or maybe even positive, but there was this frisson, we would call it stress. Oh, how are you today? Oh, I'm so stressed out. And what is it, you know, say, and we so would just, it's a marker yeah. for it. And I feel like perhaps we're using anxiety as that word. Yes. Today. So all of that was happening in my mind and in my work that was, it was leading to these questions around anxiety. I chose to focus. This is, I, there are so many conversation tabs that I want to go <laughs> with you. And so I'm just really having trouble honing it all in. Just so I'm pick one and remember it'll be them all. <laughs> but the one, I really think that's fascinating about what you said about in your generation with stress, because I remember stress being such a buzzword when I was a kid, which was probably around the same time where, you know, hearing my mom or hearing, it was just, it almost nullified it a bit because it was such a buzzword. And I feel like the same thing's happening with anxiety where, and I'm even a part of it maybe because I've made it part of my work as someone who talks about it and normalizes it, which I think is really good but we often talk about the difference between stress and anxiety on this podcast I co-host with Serena that I mentioned earlier, that, that distinction. So can you talk about the distinction between stress and anxiety? And is it problematic that we're using anxiety in a way that maybe could minimize it if it's overused in the way that it was with stress? I think when something becomes everything it sort of becomes nothing and we no longer know how to work with it in our lives. So I think there is a little bit of danger to making anxiety uh, sort of a new stress. But the difference between stress and anxiety, one way of thinking about it is that stress emerges at this intersection between the stressor, so the event that you have that's, that's creating demand on you to cope or react to it, and what you bring to the table in terms of your resources. And very importantly, what you believe you bring to the table in terms of your resources. So Planning a wedding is, objectively speaking, maybe not a bad thing, but it's a stress because it places demands on us. Mm-hmm. And our experience of stress is then, it results from, well, how capable do I feel that I am in dealing with this? Like, you know, how much can I cope? So it's always, it's always that sort of formula. And so the story we tell about ourselves and our lives, it's really important in how we perceive stress. Anxiety... Also, the story we tell is very important, but anxiety is ancient, it's this sort of apprehension about an uncertain future. So it's always future-oriented. It also, because of this uncertainty, we feel that we, you know, so it's us, you know, it's not facing a stranger in a dark alley. It's rather we're walking at night and we're wondering, oh, I wonder if I'm going to walk down a dark alley and then there'll be a stranger there. Yeah. So to deal with, so, to, so it's in some ways anxiety is this, you know, stress is very basic in many ways. Anxiety is a triumph of human evolution, because if we couldn't think into the future, we could never be anxious. And if we couldn't think into the future, we couldn't hope or dream or envision anything. So anxiety is at that intersection of where we are now. It's sort of that space between where we are now and where we want to or think we may be. And so it also triggers a similar sort of fight-flight response as we see with with fear. Mm-hmm. So you kind of have this, this triumvirate of stress, fear, and anxiety, and they're all related but a little distinct. And as a scientist, I'm interested in that. But I think practically, as a clinical scientist as well, I think about if we can take those differences and use them to understand ways in to 
kind of take back our anxiety and not be used by it, but rather figure out how to cope with it, but also even leverage it, yeah. for example. And the same goes with stress. Yeah. You know, so I, so I think about those differences. As being Can you give an example with anxiety of how to leverage it? So I think there are many ways. I think one, and I'm actually writing a book on teen anxiety right now um, that, is at, that is really about this very point. I think we have the wrong story of anxiety right now. Um, in part because we assign it to everything, mm -hmm. but also in part because we always think of it as a disease. Mm -hmm. And it is, in many cases, debilitating, and I never want to take away from real struggles um, that we have with anxiety in our lives. But anxiety is on a spectrum because it really is a human emotion that's not always a disorder. It's not like cancer. It doesn't have to be eradicated at all mm -hmm. costs. I think of it as something we have to turn down. Yeah. But as a society, we're sort of telling the story of anxiety that, oh, you can't be anxious or it's going to take control of you. It's going to become debilitating automatically. And we tell that story to our teens and our kids. And so they feel like we, that they should have no anxiety. We should be taking away their anxiety. The reason that's a really problematic story is because there's this avoidance paradox in anxiety, that the more we avoid and try and push anxiety away, the more it revs up. So if we don't engage with anxiety as something we can actually use, it will just start to spiral. Mm -hmm. And so one way to leverage anxiety sometimes is just to say, okay, wait a second. In this moment, I'm having, I'm having an anxious experience. And if you don't avoid it and tune into it, you can often deconstruct it a little, figure out some way to cope. But if you push it away and push it away, there's no way you can learn to cope with it. Yeah. And it usually the next time around becomes stronger in the long run. That's, that's one very basic kind of starter hack. What we resist persists. That's what we resist persists. And what you, what we don't use uses us. Yeah. And I think of anxiety that way because in my life I know a little bit of anxiety and obsessiveness. I could never be a scientist without really caring about the details. And anxiety keeps you in the details. I mean, it helps focus you. Yeah. You know, when we're joyful, it sort of expands us and we're like, ah, the details, what, you know. <laughs> you know. But anxiety actually, we see the trees more than the forest. Yeah. And there are times when we need that. I love speaking to, uh, to teens and kids, and um, I love middle schoolers in particular. Everyone hates on middle schoolers all the time because there's sort of this, this in-between. I think they're powerhouses. Maybe because we didn't like being in uh, middle school. No, I, mean, I definitely did not like being a middle schooler. But, but I talked to them, and I once was talking to a bunch of, like a room of 50 middle schoolers about anxiety. It was the, one of the best conversations I've had. And one of the young women said to me, she said, you know, adults act like they can just take away our anxiety. And she said, can they? And then she said, should they? And it was exactly this point. And when I tell you that the kids intuitively got the fact that no, and no, yeah, no, they can't. And no, they probably shouldn't. And, I mean, the, the kids understand immediately. And one boy piped up and he said, well, I mean, sometimes I want to be a little perfectionistic, right? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> you know, so, but but I think that natural instinct of it's, it's okay and, you know, and it's not hopeless if you feel anxiety, I think we, we, we actually do a disservice a lot of the time to our kids and we reinforce the wrong messages. Yeah. Is there any way we could talk about going back to what you were saying about stress and, and minimizing it? Like, is there anything, because as someone who's a lay person but open about my mental health and about anxiety and depression in my case and eating disorders and different things that have like that I do believe talking about are useful to not from a clinical perspective because I'm not a scientist or a 
specialist in any of these things, but I do think that making people feel less alone Mm -hmm. has been useful to me. So if I can be open about that, I'm happy to. However, I don't want to make any missteps around that. And so I'm, I'm, I think I'm pretty clear on things that can be triggering in terms of eating disorder recovery, but in terms of anxiety and even depression, I want to make sure that anything that I'm saying, I'm not minimizing what we were talking about with stress. I'm not overusing those words, especially with anxiety of, you know, even the podcast that Serena and I do, like, is there anything that we should be thinking of that could be useful in that? One thing I find useful as I think about anxiety in my life and in in science is that a really powerful way to think about anxiety is that it's a series of of cognitive habits, so habits of thought. And that's why cognitive behavioral therapy, for those of us who who do go for treatment and, and therapy, is so powerful because it really leverages the fact that how we think about ourselves in the world shapes our anxiety and because it's this future orientation. So the narrative we have is everything in many ways, at least especially in the beginning before it really kind of takes on a life of its own. So there are habits of thinking. And so that means if, 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 if anxiety is about habits of thinking, then that means habits can be changed. And it means that, there, that the power of small really reigns here. And what I mean by that is that new micro habits that we build can have a very powerful impact. So for example, if we know that a cognitive habit in anxiety is all or none thinking, or this uncertainty, difficulty challenge with uncertainty, then we can actually start to narrow in and say, you know, or, or one that I actually study very actively in my research lab is called the threat bias, this way that we have a filtering in more of the negative information around us at the exclusion of the positive. So I might, if I have a strong threat bias right now in this moment, you know, I will kind of ignore all the smiling faces and there'll be one guy, not you, <laughs> in the corner like falling asleep. And I'll just focus it's on not you. That one. <laughs> also um, the only guy. <laughs> <all of> them. <laughs> I always tell the stories that there's a guy falling asleep. I don't know why I do that, but I do anyway. But, you know, when you're strongly biased, you just can't take in that information as flexibly. But once we start realizing, you know, I know that. I know that's one of my linchpins in anxiety you can start to go for it. But it's it's only a small step that makes a difference. So I can say, oh, that just happened. I'm going to consciously fake it till I make it and notice that smiling face and that smiling face and that smiling face. And with each, and then you'll have a little success and you celebrate that. Yeah. But then it's this process of building habits. And the yeah. best way to build a habit is to do it little by little and to celebrate those successes. Can we go back to two ways that my anxiety um, and I think most anxiety really hits, you've mentioned several times, uncertainty and control. I think that's like, I, I would say those those two pockets of things are really under everything for, for humans. I think the illusion of control and that we can't control everything and everyone and that there's uncertainty makes everyone a little bit anxious. Absolutely. So is that... And um, it's a normal human response. That's yeah. what it's there for. Mm-hmm. So that, I think that's part of it. And like, I I wrote this down for me, my anxiety, you mentioned this, the dichotomous thinking of like, I have these high highs and low lows where I feel like I'm either like the greatest thing in the world or like a really teeny tiny, like dirt piece of garbage, you know? And like the reality is like, I'm probably somewhere in the middle, you know, but like in my mind, it just feels so intense. Like it's either this or this. And I think partly that too is a depression thing of like the highs, it's hard to get out of those lows to get in it when you're, you know, in a good spot, you're afraid that you're, you're like anticipating the things leaving. So how is your experience been to kind of be more 
in the center, if that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, one thing that's really interesting about anxiety that allows us also to your question of leveraging is that when you're anxious, you're in it. You're only anxious when you care about the world. And depression and having personally experienced clinical depression, it's not that. It's really like just like there are no possibilities left. Yeah. Me. So that's something. So as we think about like how do we deal with that uncertainty, we have to, I, I remind myself with anxiety, you know, it means I really care. I am in it. And so one thing um, as we think about that good space between binary, all nothing thinking is, you know, if it's not just about me and my sense of self-worth, maybe it is about that something greater than I'm anchoring myself in. Mm. And in that case, again, it's not a destination of being all good or all bad. It's that, you know, for example, with you, Katie, you are making an incredible contribution to the world of to share, as you, you know, in so many levels, but, you know, sharing your personal stories, having be, you know, something on as a topic of discussion and as a story of a person's life of, you know, we need to connect. We need those soft stories. We need to be with each other. Like all of that is an amazing contribution. And there may be an individual thing that you find along the way that that didn't work. And, oh, I feel, you know, uh, but you know that you're serving this incredible goal that brings so much to people's lives. And I think in those moments of uncertainty, at least for me, when I feel them, I was like, well, that's, that was a mess, but who had this, I'm still working towards this. So it's in some ways you're certain about what you care about and and then the uncertainty is the human condition. And it's so, so a lot of it's that story that we tell ourselves. Yeah. The stories are very powerful. So sometimes for me specifically, and I, I've heard this from several people who, when I've shared this, have related to this, anxiety comes, and, and correct me if I'm not using the right word for this, but I, I'm assuming it's anxiety. It's these little things things which we call on my podcast spiraling spirals so like one little thing happens and you even mention it and then I spiral and usually it's something like a conversation with a person I just wish I would have said like right now I'm having one actually like I had a phone conversation with someone last night and I didn't say a thing I wish I would have said and now I'm spiral and the fact that I'm still thinking about it and talking to all of you about it doesn't feel normal like is that is that anxiety or is that just being a person is am I using that word correctly so that to me um sounds like I mean there are terms I can uh-huh. throw at you <laughs> I love terms <laughs> which I think are more or less are probably more or less useful uh-huh. I mean one thing is that we have this this negative rumination so yeah. things that have happened right? oh yeah and we're bringing them into the present and projecting them into I'm the future I'm fantastic at <laughs> I am an expert in that <laughs> but the gift of that great is that <laughs> Is that what you're, you're still what you're doing is you you care about that and you're bringing into this future of who you want to be and what you want to do. And so part of I think part of things of just sort of this initial kind of disrupting the anxiety cycle, because that's also a, a, you know, a spiral, a cycle, as you pointed out, is you just have to cut it off at its knees for a moment. And there are multiple ways in to do that. OK, you know, one way and I've had moments like that, too, a lot of moments. One way is that I just say, oh. I'm literally, I just need to let it go. Yeah. You know, and, and I know that's, a, and I don't mean that in a simple way. I just mean, you know, I'm seeing what I'm doing. Um, it's, it's not always a conscious choice because it's going to keep running. But I need to let it go. And I need to figure out why I'm focused, why this is important to me. What is that? What is that telling me that I can then shift into something positive to work towards that anchors in to these things that are meaningful to me? So I could have been having a conversation um, where, 
uh, you know, I wish I had been kinder or I wish I had expressed what I really wanted or I wish, and knowing what, what I was upset about teaches me something about what I really want in life. Mm. And so that's one way where you sort of, you say, okay, that worry, that rumination, I can leverage that to understanding more about what I want. And then that can fuel me towards my future strivings. I like that. I think it's, is there anything practical for in the moment? Because I do this, I'm like joking about this, but I really do do this often. Mm -hmm. And it's something that this one last night, for instance, I, it's not a big deal thing. This person is most definitely not thinking about it. I probably will forget about it when I have another spiral about something (laughs) else. But it's just, I think that's not doing my body or my nervous system any favors to constantly be like, wish I would have said that. And and there are little things. I didn't hurt anyone's feelings. It's just, I didn't feel as seen as I wanted to, or I could have been more articulate, or I I like know I could have been better, not even in the perfectionistic way, but in a way of disappointment, I guess it is. And maybe that's just a normal human condition thing but is there a way to for instance I used to be very addicted like in my eating disorder to counting calories and someone told me don't let yourself get to the end of the count think of like anything else because you get a hit of dopamine from like knowing that number and I thought that that was really great advice because once you know the number you can either judge yourself on like you're good or you're bad and you get like that release of something but if you never get to the end of the count then you don't have to you don't know so you don't get anything from that so you'll stop doing it I like that so I think with this negative spiral when I start to think about it and I start to think okay but maybe I could just text them or maybe I could just do this or maybe I could just how do that whatever you do don't text them because because one thing and this is the avoidance paradox I mentioned we need to sit with that feeling and then my, you know, I tell stories about my, my son who's, who has a little bit of anxiety and, you know, and I just sort of saw it from the time he was 18 months old, that poor little guy having a psychologist mom, but it's a temperament. So a lot of us bring temperament to the world and he's always had that little temperament. He once asked me to email his teacher to let her know that he was, for, he was going, he forgot his homework, but he was going to do it. And it was, you know, and he wanted me to email her. So, oh, he yeah. Knew. If you were my mom, there, I'm sure I would so, have done that. So we had figured out how to get the homework. So we did that together. And then when he asked me to email her yeah. so she wouldn't put <laughs> anything bad, I said, no, Covey, I'm so sorry. Oh. I can't do that. And then explained to him that it's because right now you're feeling this discomfort, but it's a really normal feeling. And if I take it away from you, you're never going to learn how to deal with it. And it was hard because he was upset. It was right before bed. You know, he's 10 and 11 years right. old at this point. I had to go out to dinner that night. So, but I did not email his teacher. He comes back the next day. And he woke up in the morning, got him up. He's I was like, how are you feeling? He's like, I'm still a little worried. I'm okay. I was able to get to sleep. He goes back. He hands in his assignment, gets it that same day. He said, Mama, I want to show you what happened. With me, you know. And his teacher had written a big, like, star and said, great job figuring out how to get your homework done. So, but anyway, all that to say that the first, I think the first step has to be not avoiding that feeling. And then the second step can be other simple hacks that are going to be our own personal thing. So for me, I know that when I deeply relax, that's incompatible with anxiety. Because when you've activated your parasympathetic nervous system, which is the rest recovery aspect of your nervous system, you can't be in fight flight. So when we do things like diaphragmatic breathing deep relaxation, progressive muscle relaxation. The reason that even therapists will tell us to do that is because it, at least your body's not in fight flight mode yeah. because that only increases the cognitive aspects of anxiety, yeah. like the worry and the spiraling. So doing that again to disrupt 
that, that, and I think being with that emotion as much as possible and just sitting with it, and, yeah. you know, and that's, that's one way to start. And then sometimes you fake it till you make it yeah. as well. This is such a great part of this conversation, thinking about having to sit with an uncomfortable feeling, because I believe that we don't want to feel the feelings we don't want to feel. So that's when we turn to our phones to get a hit of dopamine that for me, there's a maybe... 5% chance it's actually going to make be an upper. Usually it's not, you know, <laughs> right. um, or we turn to control or we turn to work and overworking or food or drinking or whatever it is. Those coping mechanisms can be useful, but usually it's just sitting with that uncomfortable feeling and not trying to fix it or make it go away. And, and then hopefully it lessens over time. The it more will. you do that, it will. And that's sort of the basis. I mean, this is a normal human experience, but even when one is seeing a therapist, and, you're, and there's treatments for anxiety disorders that are very effective that is literally called exposure and yeah. response prevention. Yeah. <laughs> so the exposure is that you sit with that discomfort, um, you experience that thing that's causing you anxiety, and you prevent that response that lets you avoid it. Yeah. And through that process, our, bot, you know, our fight-flight response starts to just naturally go down. We realize, you know what, I can cope with this. It will, I will not, things won't completely spiral out because... Yeah. It will naturally, my feelings will go down, and then I'm going to think of a way to cope with it. Yeah. And so that is, I think, again, and that's the story of anxiety that we tell, that it isn't something we have to avoid at all costs, that it's something we can engage with, yeah. that we can even lean in on and then leverage, because you could leverage that experience. I can leverage these experiences to then do what I'm doing even better, realize something about myself, really yeah. feel, figure out what I care about, and then be energized to pursue that. Mm. Oh, this is so good. I want to talk about the holidays, but what is the most fascinating thing that you've learned somewhat recently in your research? Wow. Um, <laughs> or just something that comes um, to mind? No, yeah. I'm doing research where we actually have a study with mice and a parallel study with humans. Hold on. Hold on, hold on for a second. <laughs> Before that sounds too scary. <laughs> we do shock the humans within a comfortable range, but it's a little unpleasant. There's actually, it's called a stimulator. That just sounds so horrible as I'm saying it. And we let people pick a level of stimulation that's a little uncomfortable. And when we teach them about when that stimulation is coming. And our idea is that when we focus too much on, on fear, when we learn about fear and threat and all these things, we actually will have a harder time unlearning that association. But if we actually learn about safety, that we start to focus and shift our focus to learning about positive things and safe things, that actually will have more flexibility to unlearn those kind of negative associations. So I'm really interested in how we can promote safety learning or learning about the positive in our lives and not getting us stuck on, on the fear. Yeah, I think about all the time. I know I, and I think this is true across the board, you can correct me, I am so much more motivated by encouragement and validation and things that I'm doing right than what I'm doing wrong, which was not at all how I was brought up. And I think I'm learning that now as an adult, where if I don't, I think my question is how much of this conversation we're having about anxiety and spiraling and all these different things relates to self-worth and confidence? Because I think if I was really confident and liked myself, I wouldn't be thinking about the fact that I like might have not been as you might not have said the thing I wanted to say on the phone or whatever it is. It may, but I think that liking yourself, like anxiety, is a series of habits. So like any habit, you can just 
right. develop new ones. Right. And you have to break down the old habits. If we say to ourselves, well, if I'm not confident, then, you know, that's why I tend to focus on this. Maybe, maybe not, but it almost doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. And maybe if it doesn't matter, it sort of frees us up yeah. a little bit to say, well, you know what? This is a habit. I'm going to choose, and I'm going to definitely fake it till I make it because it's not going to be easy. I don't mean to suggest any of this is easy, yeah. but I'm just going to choose to have these practices around how I focus on rewarding information rather than people who criticize me. I'm going to, and I'm just going to know that, and I'm going to seek out those people who make me feel good and know that, and, that, and maybe I don't believe I deserve that, but it's a habit. I'm just going to do it. That's really interesting because I think I can get really bogged down in with anxiety as well, but especially with the conversation of self-worth and self-love and all, all these things where it's just like, that feels like too big of a jump. And I also know, I also really do believe in it. And like, I do think life would probably be easier for people who like themselves. Like, I don't really understand those people all the time, but like, I get it. Like that works, but to get from there to there seems so big. That is so important to say because, and that's what I meant earlier and didn't really, I don't think elaborate on the power of small. Because what you're saying is that that is such a big task. How do we even tackle that? But the funny thing we may find, I believe we will find it most of the time, is that if we take those little small steps that are faking it till you make it, you will actually get there at the end. And you won't even realize that you've gotten there and then it happens. Yeah. But it's a small, you can't get there by a giant leap. There's no way that change happens that way. People who love things like the power of habit and all that kind of thinking, it's all about those small micro changes and we celebrate successes at each step of the way. And it's about believe, like, if I don't believe, I just finished this big project, and if I, I had to believe that I could do it, and if I didn't believe that I could do it, I would just stop halfway, you know, like, even if it was delusional to think I could do it, like, I have to, you know, it, it's that saying of, you have to believe it to see it, right? 100%. And that, yeah, and that's why I think the stories we tell about ourselves about anxiety and stress and the struggles we have are so crucial, because it's that narrative. Yeah. All of us have a story of our life, and it yeah. may not have anything to do, much to do with reality, whatever yeah. that is, but that narrative is what keeps us Yes, safe. yeah, the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves we have to be careful about. So this is a question about overwhelm, which I think relates to the holidays, but isn't necessarily exclusively about the holidays. I think we can experience overwhelm all sorts of times of the year, but especially right now, there's a plethora of it. It's a topic that Serena and I brought up on the podcast this week. Maybe you could bring that into the fold with these terms that we've defined, stress, overwhelm, anxiety. I think they're all, the way that Serena defined it was saying that overwhelm is really triggering for her anxiety. Where for me, I I really agreed with that of like, when I have so much on my plate and I'm overwhelmed, it causes stress. It causes me to not have as much time to do those calming mm-hmm. things, or I'm not doing them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think it all kind of exasperates, but I would love if you could just kind of talk about overwhelm in this context. That's interesting. And I think that the way you're framing it is perfectly, I mean, I think it has uh, makes a lot of sense and, and probably leads to some really good choices. I would say something a little bit different, mm-hmm. just because I always create these little models in my mind. Yeah. <laughs> I make sense of the world, which is anti-anxiety. <laughs> um, um, so I see the, the overwhelm as sort of emerging out of stress. So stress, again, is that yep. what's the match between the, the challenges I have and my capacity to cope with them. And when capacity, you know, when, when challenge overwhelms capacity, you feel overwhelmed. So overwhelm emerges out of, and out of the stress that, that gets uh-huh. too high of a level, and then you're just there. Overwhelm would, would impact anxiety because now, as you said, I don't have time for the self-care. 
Yeah, there's also, because anxiety is about that discrepancy between where you are now and where you want to be, overwhelm is because you're struggling to get these things done, which yeah. is future orientation. Yes. So that would, would fuel this kind of anxious apprehension, and you're kind of stuck in these cycles of trying to figure out how I can get where I want to get. Mm. So, but I think that idea of the self-care opportunities and the kinds of, you know, all of our cognitive habits that drive anxiety have more space to rear their ugly head a little bit. Yeah. I think that's that, that, that. So I would think about it just pretty much the same, but just with a slight twist on it. It shows you need to prioritize those self-care things even more. And probably too, that it shows that there are multiple ways in. So if you know there's stress, which leads to overwhelm, which leads to anxiety, now you have multiple points of interve- intervention. And for me, every day is an intervention, which yeah. is funny. I actually said that to my husband one time. He said, what in the world? I was like, oh, with our kids, you know, I'm just always really looking for ways to support them. And every day is an intervention. He said, oh my God, do they have a clinical disorder? I said, no, that's not <laughs> what I mean. I mean, there are these tiny tweaks. So for example, not emailing Covey's teacher. Yeah. That was a, a point of, of intervention yeah. or a point of, um, maybe there's a better word. That's a horrible word, but yeah. you know, you know, it's this point of support or a point yeah. of, of shifting. No, I really like that. I, Every day is a point of interest. I really like that as for yourself, like the way I talk about pivoting. It's like yeah. inter- I'm going That's to a better work. <laughs> yeah, but <laughs> I, I, lover, I actually you know? like yours better of like me not texting this person or me not doing the thing I would normally do to like, okay, relief, relief, like getting that. I, I have this thing with, I, I wrote an essay about this once about saying I'm sorry too much. Mm-hmm. And I was saying I'm sorry not because I was apologizing really because more because I wanted that it's okay I wanted someone to validate me I wanted someone to like instead of just sitting with that uncomfortable feeling of like maybe I made a mistake or maybe I could have been better I wanted to make it go away such a good insight wow yeah 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 so I've been trying to have an intervention with myself and not do that as much. And what that does is that empowers you yeah and it makes and it, it's part of this narrative of you know I can lean in and, and use this anxiety instead of being used by it. Yeah. So I think I, I'm, I'm glad that's a good word. <laughs> yeah, no, I really like that. You did not react well to that word. I also didn't explain it. <laughs> well, okay, so I, oh no, now my notes went, see the phones aren't even, um, they're really not. They're not designed for us. Okay? Yeah. They're designed for the business I, model. Now I don't even know where they went. <laughs> um, okay, I'm going to so pull up my notes, but. But in the meantime, maybe you could talk about why is it, other than overwhelm, that this there's so much anxiety or that word is attached to this time of year from your perspective and maybe some interventions that we can have. I think we have big hopes for what this the, the holiday season signifies and what it brings to us. And so we've set this, you know, this sort of goal that then we have to attain. So again, anxiety is always about the future. So as yeah. soon as, so depending on how high that goal is or how much we're hanging on it as, as making our lives better. I think that that mentality can sometimes fuel more of our anxiety. Yeah. And I think as a, as a mom, I have an 11-year-old son and an 8-year-old daughter, I think a lot about making this time magical for the kids. And, blah, blah. and we may feel that about whoever is in our life um, and for, or for ourselves. And I think if we just, you know, even just, a, a, it's obvious, I mean, I'm not telling anyone anything that's rocket science, but... I think adjusting not only the level of aspiration, but giving ourselves a break mm-hmm. in terms of what counts as good enough. One thing I, I like to say about parenting that's really from decades of research on parenting is that it's really actually quite hard to screw up your kids completely. And that as long as parenting is good enough, <laughs> yeah, it, 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 it's going to be okay. 
So I feel like that's the same with holiday. If we give ourselves permission to be yeah. good enough and that there's not, again, binary, all good, all bad. I, I just think that that small shift in, in our viewpoint and, you know, perfectionism is a real killer. It's actually a form of avoidance. Mm. Um, so, so when we're perfectionistic, we say, okay, I need to, you know, I'm really anxious. I'll just take a test example. I'm really anxious about this test. And so, and if I don't do well on this test, I'm not going to get into college. So that's this sort of, I'm really uncertain about this future and I have to dwell on this test to succeed. Yeah. So you study, study, study for days instead of the hours it probably requires, right? And then you do well. And you can often keep that cycle. And so you don't have to deal with the uncertainty, right? You know, I did well. I'm, I'm on this path to whatever this future is I'm, I'm really anxious about. But that's great in the short term. But then as soon as you don't perform perfectly as soon as that there's a chink in the armor right everything falls apart and you've never actually faced that apprehension you have about this big thing which is getting into college yeah and so I think the holidays like that with the holidays like getting into college (laughs) you you know let's we can't force ourselves to be perfectionistic let's be precisionistic let's be good enough let's do well but but not perfectly there's so much pressure on us this time of year I've said this before but we have to do all of our normal day-to-day tasks as well as so many holiday parties, buy gifts, travel maybe, and be extra cheery. And like, you might not feel that way that day. Yeah. And <laughs> it's interesting. And this is a good example of, of today for me, actually. I The person I had on my podcast this past week, she has this line of, um, her name is Abby. And she says, there's this grief that comes when normal Abby, which is like, her at her, not even her best, but her at her like normal, where she's like not sick, not super tired, has all of her work done, not overwhelmed with work, not on her period, like all these things where it just like allows her to like show up as her normal self, would love to go to that thing or go to that party or be at that event. And maybe she said yes to it in that state. And then her back is hurting or she's whatever. Then she has to make a call of like, really did want to do this but now I don't and there's a grief there with the discrepancy between those two versions of herself and there's like a letting go of like canceling plans and like not being able to do that and that if there's a bummer that's a bummer and so I think there's a lot of that in the holidays because we might not feel the me today is different than the me does that make sense really interesting I've never thought of it that way um I think, and, and to t- discuss and to talk about it as grief is really, um, you know, insightful and, and, and interesting perspective on it. One thing that was coming into my mind was that I'm in my 40s now, and there's something that becomes less crystallized about your sense of self mm-hmm. a lot of the time when you get older, and you realize, you know, there's there's not that one, you know, there's, there's not just that one version of Tracy, not that she has just one version of Abby, but but I almost wonder if part of, as we go through life, as we let go and we realize, you know, I was a very different person in my twenties and now I'm this person, maybe I'm that person. And, and there's five versions of good Tracy. And then there's this like really mess of a bad Tracy. And, and I almost wonder if there's more, as you get more flexibility in that sense of yourself, if it takes a little pressure off yeah. and I don't, I don't know, but that was, I was just wondering about that as I was yeah. hearing you. I think, I think I've gone through periods of my life where it's been easier. Like mm. if the better I'm feeling about myself, the easier everything is Mm, but definitely the easier it is to like cancel plans and not believe like I'll never be invited again or everyone's gonna be so mad at me or you know if I'm feeling good about myself it's no big deal and if I'm feeling comfortable with the people who I'm interacting with no big deal but if I'm at all feeling shaky then that all everything exasperates you know 
And part of our reaction to feeling shaky can spiral it out mm-hmm. too. And so a lot of it, I think, is also having compassion for ourselves. Yeah. There are just days and I just like really mess up. It's like a really bad day. And on those days, I usually just like go to sleep. <laughs> I, have a, I have a belief uh, that I will wake up and it will be a lot better. Like, and there have been days with my kid, and I really, you know, I want to be a, a good mom. It really matters a lot to me. You there are, are days when I just, <laughs> when I just really messed up. I, I once had the kids put themselves to bed. I was like, kids, I just have to go to sleep. It's a really bad day for mommy. Can you guys just, like, finish brushing up your teeth and just put yourself to bed? And it was like, even now I feel horrible thinking about it. But you know what? I woke up and I felt better, and they saw that I woke up and felt better. It was a really bad day, and then we moved on from it. Yeah. And just that belief that, you know, that's how life is. Yeah. It, it helps, I think. Yeah, I feel like there we're not always going to be great. So the sooner we can like just pivot and start a new day or just sit in our own gunk, yeah. I don't think it's And that productive. you can start a new day. Yeah. And you can say, you know what? I can be a new fresh me today. And that's where you know, being more I think you know, having that kind of um, plasticity, that that flexibility in our sense of self allows us also yeah. to think about that. I think really going into the holidays and just taking as much pressure off of ourselves as we can, being a little bit kinder to ourselves, gentler with ourselves, patient, that kind of runs the gamut of everything. I have a couple things that I have found to be useful that I can talk about too, but is there anything that you want to tell people thinking about spending time with family specifically that can be stress, anxiety, overwhelm. Uh, I don't know that I have any solutions. I mean, one thing is, it's really, I think, similar to what we were talking about, that when you're with your family, you just get projected right back into that. Yeah. Uh, And all the, like, all the good and all the bad of what you were as a kid and all those patterns. Yes. Just expect it. Yeah. (laughs) Just expect it and say, okay. Uh, You know. That's really good advice. uh, And, you know, just try it. It's like, what we resist persists. I think I would go into like spending time with my family every year of like, or not even just the holidays, whenever I would be with my family of just being like, this year is going to be different. This year I'm going <laughs> to no, 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 no. be who I am with my friends the whole time. I'm going to change the whole dynamic. And then I'd be disappointed when every time it fails, I just need to go into next week and be like. This is also old age speaking. You just have to let go and just say, you know what? That's, that's it. That's what it that is. That is the best advice. <laughs> Yeah, it's like the finger. Yeah, the finger trap. I, I just love that metaphor. I, no, mean, I can, so I can feel it. I can feel trying to get out of it. It's always like woven grass. Too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, thinking about the end of the year, and also like we we talked about holidays, and actually, well, before we talk about the end of the year, I, I wrote down a couple notes that I shared with you about holidays that I'll share, and then I would love your like feedback on them. So. These are things that I've gotten from from different people, but one thing that I'm going to try to do in this conversation with that we were just having about family is trying to feel as much like myself as I can. So whether that's I got this advice to like if you're someone who finds therapy useful or has a, a friend who's just really cozy to you, you can know you can be yourself with. Have a session before you go with them or a friend hangout, and then schedule one for right when you get back. Um, and ask them before you go to remind you of like who you are. Like these are your soft spots. These are where you're usually taken out. And this is how you're really great. And and have that conversation, especially with a therapist. It's great because you pay that person. Um, but someone who can remind you of who you are so you can take that with you. I thought that that was a really I love that idea. That's great. Having little check-ins when you're gone, even like connecting with that person while you're gone a couple times. 
even a text that will just remind you. It will remind you. Because that's a big thing for me is like I instantly revert to childhood and I forget about all the ways I've grown and I just am like, well, I'm just this person who, you know, blah, 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 blah. Um, And that really starts to spiral. So to have those reminders are really great. Mm -hmm. And then when you are there to not judge your old self and the people around you and just accept them. And this I got from Daniela Poor, but she says, Go with the intention of giving love, not getting love. And I thought that that was really interesting. And like, yes, it's great to receive love. But if you can just go with the intention of this is what I have to give, I think that takes the pressure off anything coming back to you. Again, I love that idea. And I think, um, and that's where the disappointment usually is, right? That we are not being loved in the way we want to or in a way that triggers things that aren't comfortable for us yeah and if we just let go of that and say you know i'm not going to expect anything right i'm just going to give love to the best of my ability automatically you're going to be projected into this best version of yourself to some to a really great degree yes exactly and then you're not judging other people for what they can't give or what they're unable to give no i love Um, that idea and I think, too, I, I used to go into it being like, I'm going to show you how much I've changed and maybe you'll want to change, too, which never works. Never works. But, you know, it, it's not their job to congratulate you on how much you've grown, too. Like, it might even be annoying to them or um, jarring. And so to just, like, this is who I am, this is, instead of making it such a big thing and there doesn't need to be a lot of announcing (laughs) you know just be agree 100 percent. yeah what else did I put on here oh I just wrote down use all of your growth to give everyone around you a big break (laughs) and I think that that you know instead of sometimes we look at our growth as oh such a positive thing for us that we want everyone else to have it which is great but instead it really is just a lot of judgment so if we can just be like I love you I see you and just try to rest. I think, that's and you will nice. bring out the best in the people around you when you're in that space, anyway. So you'll probably yeah. get the best situation. Not that it will be perfect and have no expectations, but it will probably be better anyway. Yeah, I think all of this comes back to our conversation of releasing control, you know, and being present. I think we—that's one thing we didn't really talk about, um, which is such a conversation with digital wellness too. Mm-hmm. And I guess being present goes back to our conversation of feeling those uncomfortable feelings. Because exactly. I'm assuming yeah. anxiety can't exist in the present moment. That's right. Because anxiety is always in the future. Right. So when you want to sort of take a, back, a step back from the kind of cycle that might have started with anxiety being in the moment, either being with your feelings, having a mind, you know, a meditation or mindfulness practice, just savoring what's around you. Those kinds of things can definitely think of, you know, think of, if you think of anxiety as a cycle, you just sort of choke the engine yeah. a little bit. And then you can at least reset to some degree. So that's absolutely right. Yeah, I love that. What are any practices that you personally have for self-care or depression or anxiety, being present, digital wellness that are useful for you? Yoga is very important to me. But it also forces me, you know, my mind is often, I'm a very, I'm an over busy person. And I try to be aware of how I use that busyness to not be present. So I try to take that time. You know, and, and through yoga, and even just stretching, even my physical therapy, because I have a back issue once in a while. So I do that. I do do uh, meditation, and I do Hindu chanting, which I learned uh, when I was studying Sanskrit, which I mentioned early on. I had become very interested in my late teens, and so I do that. And the interesting thing about Hindu faith and Buddhism and other uh, faiths like that, I think actually Catholicism, I was raised Catholic, is that these symbols that we engage with are symbols for our lives, and they're very psychological. 
So we went to St. Patrick's, my family and I, yesterday, and we went to each of the altars and we went to the, you know, and we saw all the beautiful spaces there. And just remembering, you know, what did the Mary represent to yeah. people in terms of the peace she brought and the comfort? Um, in Hinduism, what does Ganesha, who removes obstacles and is also humorous, what does he remind us about our lives? So I, I try to take time for that and it sort of refocuses me. So we haven't really spoken about spirituality in this context of mental health, but I think there's such a connection with uncertainty and fear and change and not being able. I I think that all religions really started because this fact that we can't control the fact we're going to die, you know? So where are you with spirituality, religion, what happens when we die and how that affects our mental health? You know, that's a, that's a big conversation, but I think um, the broad stroke reaction I have to that is that there's spirituality and there's organized religion, and we all know some of the problems with organized religion. Um, I think, you know, I think it's about finding, you know, what are those, what are what allows you to believe in a benign universe, a basically benign, and maybe some of us don't believe in a completely benign universe, but what allows us to make sense of the world um, in a basically benign way, to feel empowered in our future, and to feel that there's succor, that there's comfort that we can offer each other and connection. And so, you know, for me, I was raised Catholic. It didn't quite work for me in, in just as a human being. And I figured that out when I was in my teens. And then I found Hinduism and it really did work for me as a way to make sense of the world and to have a practice of something I could bring to my day that, that also gave comfort and love and meaning. When I was a teenager and started learning about Hinduism, it was incredible to me that there was this it's called the mantra shastra. It's the science of sound. And so when we do meditation, when we chant, you know, all those sounds that, you know, om, all of those things, it's this, it's this power of sound that can transform. And I was a musician, so that made a lot of sense to me. Yeah. And I just sort of found ways to utilize that. And I, I found it at a time when I was very troubled as a teen, actually. And I think it allowed me to believe in my own power because it's a very empowering uh, faith in many ways. I think Catholicism can be that way for people. Buddhism, Judaism, I think there are a lot of faiths that you have practices and a sense of personal purpose and power that helps us through those hard times. So whatever form that is for an individual, and maybe it's not an organized religion, or maybe it's something that's more considered more alternative, whether it's Wicca or, you know, whatever it is, just find something. Maybe it's not even spiritual. Maybe it's existentialism. Yeah, a 12-step program. Find something that gives you meaning, and I think that's that's really powerful. Love that. I have more questions for you, but I should we open it up? Yeah. Does anyone here want to ask a question to Tracy or like share anything about the holidays or in general? I had one thing that I thought about. Yes, please. About going home and being with family and kind of the regression that a lot of people um, experience. And last year, very similar. I was like, it's going to be the year. I'm an adult now. They're going to see it. (laughs) And inevitably that kind of fell apart. But then I actually had a very good conversation with my dad where he kind of acknowledged, I know it must be so frustrating to be treated like a 15 year old that you don't recognize in yourself necessarily anymore. And now going into the next set of holidays, like I know that that is not going to be a conversation or an acknowledgement I'm going to get all the time or from every person. But to even just know that, like, a conversation, like, that was recognized at some point. So I know it's there. Yeah. So even if in all the little things, I'm like, okay, in the big picture, that's understood. Oh, so I yeah. can lean on that. And I don't need to, like, 
hear it every time. Yes. But I can just know that that's there. Oh, how yeah. cool of your dad. Really cool. It was a very good, it was a good conversation. Yeah, that's really cool. Oh, I love that. That's cool, Molly. Anybody else have anything? While you're thinking, what's your favorite part of the holidays as an adult? Hmm. This is going to sound horrible. Sleeping and not being on schedule, but that's about rejuvenating, I think. Yeah. And we can just, as a family, just, we're not terribly ambitious you know, I'm not sending my kids to tournaments all the time and running around and doing outdoorsy things. We're kind of lazy. Um, we love to sit around and talk and read books <laughs> and watch family. shows together. Yeah. And, you know, so I really just enjoy that time yeah. and just connecting again. Mm, I love yeah. that. That sounds nice. Yeah. We didn't, one thing we didn't touch on that I wanted to, we did maybe slightly in between, but social media and anxiety and just, you already mentioned the rise in anxiety. And I was wondering, like, is that just because we're talking about it more and we're seeing people talk about it more? But you mentioned, like, no, it's it actually... There's some stats to suggest it. Yeah. Maybe but how, how, what are your thoughts about, you know, our relationships with our phones and how that affects our mental health? I mean, this is, you know, this is... An intervention. Yeah. No, I mean, my, my, my basic take on technology and, and anxiety and our emotional well-being is that there's something going on. <laughs> you know that but because I'm a scientist I think we you know a lot of we can be very binary in our conclusions right we can say it's all technology or technology is fine why is everyone blaming technology and people get seduced into that because it's headline grabbing and it's yeah. but I think as scientists we have to pull ourselves together and really figure out what the science is telling us yeah. because there's good science going on but it takes a long time to do the kind of science that can draw a causal arrow between devices and technology and social media of certain types for certain people and how it could lead, you know, more directly. Yeah. To so I tend to think, but my, my guess is that, and, and I think how we use technology is that this, it's this ultimate escape machine, sort of as you described. And so when we use it habitually, it's so, you know, we're so compulsive in our use because it was designed that way to be compulsive. We're so compulsively avoiding the present moment, boredom, distress by escaping into our phones. I think that is an accelerator yeah. of anxiety. And I think it's part of what we're seeing. I don't think it causes all anxiety. I think, and I think if we just blame technology, it's a cop-out. Because especially with our teens, who I think are going through a lot right now in terms of the world that we've yeah. handed them and the kinds of li the challenges that they face, if we just blame it on technology, we ignore all the other factors. Right. And then it's, it's and, and it doesn't lead to the right solutions. Right. It also isn't nuanced. So we don't know that, you know, for some people it's going to be fine. Yeah. Or they could use it in these very positive ways. Right. But for others, under certain circumstances, when they use it in this, but it's hard to be nuanced, right? When everyone wants to grab headlines. You know? Yeah, that's really interesting. I I interviewed someone on Friday, and I always ask a, a question of this brand, and she was just saying, I she was so emphatical, like I don't want people coming down on technology and social media. She's like, social media is a positive tool, and she was like, for for me, it's uh, it's affected like. It's given marginalized people and people of color a voice that maybe they wouldn't have had before. And that is so lovely. And there's so many good things about social media. And I've seen them and like many people here and people that I've met and through social media, there's been so many great things about it. But I think every it's different for every person. This person has like a really positive relationship with it. Mm. Where for me, I think it's like from a very non-scientific perspective, I think we can all kind of tell when things are good for us and when things are bad for 100%. us. You know? It doesn't take a scientist to tell you. And, yeah. and I think, if, I mean, it's good to have a positive attitude towards some of social media, but there's no question 
that social media has been designed in a way that's compulsive, that amplifies the negative, the algorithms are messed up. Yes, it's connected at marginalized groups and given them a voice, but it's also, uh, you know, contributed to horrible things in, in the world yeah. and mass genocide. So I think we just have to have open eyes and say there is the positive. How do we optimize the positive and minimize the negative, not just blaming ourselves for being compulsive users, but forcing these companies yeah. to change what they're doing? And if we just say it's all good, we leave out the right. responsibility for these technology companies to actually do better in how they, they, they create yeah. uh, uh, these algorithms. For and us. like you said, it's really nuanced. You know, I think for me, like, I can get in flows where I feel really good about it, mm-hmm. but then it's very complicated for me because it's related to my work, but it's also related to my life. And it's like, here's this thing that I'm inviting everyone I've ever known, like someone mm-hmm. I met one time and someone I have a crush on and my fourth grade teacher and my mom, <laughs> like everyone is at my office, basically, you know? <laughs> I think that is... See, that's why I'm not on social media. Yeah. Very much. I couldn't, See, I couldn't that, do it. I couldn't do it. That's a lot. And then also yeah. just like being exposed to other people's this is going to sound odd, but this is where I'm, this is my most recent way I'm interacting with social media. Seeing other people's joy as often as I am, even though I'm so happy to like see Chris and Rachel and Molly and like see you guys on social media, it's fun. But if I'm having a low day and then I see everyone I've ever known having fun, suddenly I'm feeling lower just because it's not even comparison of like, oh, I wish that I was doing that. It's not even it's not even that or not want it. Like I want you guys to be feeling joy all the time. And I know that you're, you're not, but it's, it's that exposure. It's extremely hard to disrupt that natural human reaction. It's just a natural human reaction. We're social comparators. And when I'm feeling good, it's like, it's, it's easy. But who wants to be on that ride all the time? It's hard. Yeah. Anyway. Okay. I don't want to end on a negative note. (laughs) So I'm going to ask you one more thing and then land the plane. Did anyone have anything else? For any comments or ideas, yeah. Yes, um, so going back to the thing you noted about your son wanting to email his teacher and you choosing not to, um, how do you kind of negotiate sitting in that discomfort by yourself versus getting support from other people? Because the first reaction is to email the teacher, um, but then you are supporting him through that discomfort of it, but then you're also going out to dinner. So and that like, night, I had to go out to dinner. It, was, so, it made it harder. So, yeah. Um, Great you question. You know, in that example, how does that work, but then more broadly, like... So, a couple things, right? So, one thing is that um, he and I, for, for a long time, have talked about strategies that he can use to sort of calm himself. And so, we talked about... I didn't mention that. We talked about what he could do while he was going to sleep and and so we did talk through that to strategize what are some of those oh things like you know we have these little visualizations that we do that's your your body's relaxing you become a little cloud you float in the air it's actually auto hypnosis but (laughs) but it's it's really and it's sweet and it's cool and my kids i I do that as bedtime stories sometimes because it's just a story i think i I I should actually record it because sometimes i'm tired it takes a lot of energy i was like i just have to record this and i can if i'm really tired one day i can just send it around to my myself (laughs) and my friends and my kids um but the other thing that um it wasn't optimal you know that i went because i think that there's some that has to happen independently and some, especially for kids that we scaffold. But there's this idea of, uh, called anti-fragility. And it's this notion that, you know, there's, there's resilience that something bad happens, we kind of rise up. But anti-fragility is this idea that challenges actually are required to make us stronger. So the immune system is an anti-fragile system. 
Because unless we challenge the immune system with germs, with you know, bacteria, it can't function. So I think of our emotional lives as anti-fragile systems. So you know what? Sometimes he's not going to have his mama there. And he has to figure it out. So good. And even though that is painful for me, maybe as much as, as it was for, for him, I think it was a it was a really corrective emotional experience. It also turned out perfectly, thank God, with his teacher <laughs> after who rewarded him for his grit and just doing it and doing it in this way that wasn't perfect, but showed his ability. Yeah. So it was just a win-win, um, which is probably why I told that story um, in particular. And, and sometimes it doesn't work so well. But I believe in that anti-fragility of our kids' emotional lives. I just think we have to give them those chances to do it on their own. And, you know, we can check in later. Yeah. No, that's that's so good because I've known people as adults who have had parents that haven't been that way and have had them so tightly that it it's disruptive as an adult. It's a disservice in the long run, yeah. I think. And again, it's not that you should always do that and just let your kids, you know, throw them in the deep end. But I think sometimes when you can't be a perfect parent, it's actually, it can be good for our kids too. And I think that, like, that direction is hard too. But again, it's like somewhere in the middle is probably best. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And I think in adulthood, one of the more common ways, and I've seen this with a lot of friends and even times for myself, is leaning on a partner. Like, if I can't text my boss, I'll text my boyfriend every single time. And so then seeing the extreme of that sometimes, like knowing like, okay, sometimes I have to do it us. on my own yeah, and not like lean on someone else. And then they'll check in later and you can talk about it later. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I relate to that so much. I think that's a lot of the analogies with parenthood, I think come it, it all comes into relationships and then it's the same thing of like you just want to turn to something because we don't want to sit and be with ourselves so when you have that cozy the coziest person to you which was yeah. probably a parent which is probably a romantic partner a close friend it's like when that's taken away you have to like sitting with this that, that discomfort is really powerful yeah. that's the thing I mean we think of it as something that weakens it but it's like this energy that's there so it really to be with it it's, it's really a, 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 not that we anyone can do it perfectly every time, but it's an opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. I'm proud of us guys for sitting with us. It's not easy. Um, okay. So the name of this podcast is Let It Out. So we end with taking a deep breath together. Are you guys all down to do it with me? Okay. Inhale. And let it out. Thank you guys so much for coming. This is really great. Thank you so much, Tracy. This is such an Thank you so much for listening to my episode with Tracy. Again, go back and listen to last week's episode if you haven't. And go back to the archive while I'm gone. I'll be back January 16th. And I love you. If you love this podcast, you probably will also like my podcast, Spiraling with Serena. So I'm going to link to the holiday episode of Spiraling. But if you haven't yet checked out that podcast, since this was heavy on the anxiety talk, I think you would like that project as well. Might be a good time to dive into that while Let It Out is on a break. Support the sponsors. Keep in touch with me on the internet. Leave a review in this, you know, interim while I'm gone. Guys, you got lots to do. It means so much that you're listening. I hope that you have a restful time off maybe, or if you're working, that you can find some time for self-care. I'm so grateful for you guys. I'm actually going to be traveling more on that soon. But next time I talk to you, I will be in Bali, which is crazy and really cool. 
Over here at Let It Out, we are on the go. And that's why we love Care-of Vitamins. One of the reasons. Care-of is a monthly subscription vitamin service made from effective quality ingredients personally tailored to your exact needs. Here's a big reason why I love them. They have a quiz that you go to their website and take. It's fun, it's online, it asks you questions about your health goals, your lifestyle choices, how often you're going to the bathroom, how much you're sleeping. It takes about five minutes, but it reminds me of the quizzes I would take in like Seventeen Magazine. And I love me a good personality quiz or a health quiz. 90% of people fall short of the FDA's recommended guidelines for at least one vitamin or nutrient. And Care-of's quiz can help you identify the vitamins you need to get back on track with feeling your best. I love them. They're delivered right to my door in these easy to remember, very beautiful packaging, personalized containers, these daily packs. They also have a new delicious nutrient packed quick stick powder that can be added to your monthly delivery for an extra easy boost whenever you need it. Very cool. Again, I love using them. I always toss them in my bags so I can remember to actually take my vitamins during the day. And they're great for travel. And I've actually saved money using Care-of than I would have used buying all the supplements that I needed to take. And here's another update. I have taken the quiz again, and I highly recommend, you know, if you've been on Care-of for a while, take the quiz again and see where you are today because I've completely changed out some of the vitamins that I've been taking over the time that I've been using them. And they make these compostable packs that meet the same quality and safety standards. And they have a ton of info on how to compost them on their website. I love brands that are thinking about the environment and ways to be more sustainable. So I really love that. So for 50% off your first order of Care-of, go to takecareof.com and enter the code Let It Out at checkout. Again, that's 50% off your first order at takecareof.com and use the code Let It Out. They're easy and convenient and they source the best, most highest quality ingredients in all of their products. I trust this company. I love this company. Give them a go. I love you guys so much and I will talk to you soon. Keep in touch on the internet and the emoji for this week's episode is the Christmas tree. <laughs>